Hi, and welcome to Fangirl Happy Hour. I'm Renee, and today we're here to answer a bunch of listener questions. I'm here with my fellow fangirl, Anna, to give you all the answers you've ever wanted to a lot of random stuff. Hey, Anna. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm fine. I just watched for the second time the new trailer that we were talking about earlier. Batman versus Superman trailer is out. Yes, that everybody hates and I love it. Everybody hates it? I have not seen a lot of people hating on it. I've seen a lot of people going, oh my god, this is good. No, I saw so many people saying this looks awful and going on and on about how this is not real Batman, this is not real Superman, this is not, why is Wonder Woman like this and why is Lex Luthor like that? And I'm like, but this is so goofy. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it's not meant to be goofy. Well, it's DC, so I'm... But it's so goofy. I love this. How did I I explain my reaction to it? I was like, gritty, 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 clown honk noise. (laughs) That's how it read to me. It's just the weirdest. Tonally, it's so weird. Like, I just must be spoiled. Because really, the only interaction I've had with the character of Lex Luthor was in Smallville. Yeah. Where he was, like, (laughs) a super angsty 20-something. Yeah. Who wanted to bone Clark. Totally, right? Totally. Yeah. Even I could tell that one, Renee. Mm -hmm. So that's the only... So this is a really interesting interpretation of that character. It's like, so what is what is happening to you, Lex Luthor? You on cocaine or something? Sadly, I wasn't interested in this movie until this trailer. Because as soon as I saw Lex Luthor, I was like, oh my god, this is great, Jesse Eisenberg. This is amazing. And then Wonder Woman showed up, and I'm like, okay, sold. Yes, exactly. Listen, I was telling about the trailer to my coworkers, whom you know, they don't even know anything about it. But I kept going on anyway. Uh, so I told them, and I made them listen to me. And then I started crying when when I told them about Wonder Woman. They were like staring at me and like, like I'm sorry. I'm very sensitive and I have opinions on superheroes. <laughs> I just have a lot of emotions about them. Oh, it's hilarious. I love it. I love the trailer. And then when she, when she shows up and they were like, is she with you? No, I thought she was with you. They're like, are you kidding, guys? What is it this? Was like, too- like, it's so weird. <laughs> I just don't even understand their interactions. It's so strange. And I mean, I didn't like, I, I just did not like Man of Steel at all. I found it really, the humanity in that movie was completely absent. Yeah. I mean, I understand why people liked it, I guess. But for me... I was just like, well, I could have just used a movie about Lois. That would have been good. Yeah, totally. I was really but, upset that in this trailer, there women just don't speak to each other. No. Not at all. Well. And then that one of them gets called psychotic. Oh, yes, it's true. I was uh, just like, oh, okay. Alrighty then. Got it. I do not know if I'll see this in the theater at all. I will probably wait. Oh, I will definitely go. Uh, well, um, of course you will. And, and, I, and I hope to go with friends so that we can laugh. Because I it. think it's going to be awful. Oh, I, I have no doubt it's going to be a hot mess. So I'm really looking forward to it. Therefore. Exactly, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's what you do with this kind of thing. You, you go and you're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to love it. The thing that I loved the most about the trailer is the motivation for the fight. And it's like Superman, Clark Kent looks at Bruce Wayne and goes, there is this guy here in Gotham that is all vigilante. And I'm like, internally, I'm like, what is Superman doing exactly? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> guys. <laughs> Shut up. You know you're going to get together and do this 
just to see. Well, they're going to get together, but not the way I want them to get together, unfortunately. Yeah. And well, in other news, in other news, yes, I have unlocked the Hugo spreadsheet. Yay! Me and a few friends get together every year and put together a spreadsheet, and we spend the whole year just dropping in things that we like or things that we want to check out. And it's locked to private editors for the most of the year because we've had some people be jerks about it. But in December, I basically unlock it, and I do regular backups, and it's hosted in the cloud, so you can't really do that much damage, but it's really annoying having to restore from a previous version when some dick has come along and deleted all the sheets. Really, guys? It's in the cloud. What are you doing? <laughs> do people really delete stuff? And some are... Last year, yes. Yeah, several times on my sheet last year, people went in and went to every individual sheet and just deleted it. Everything off every sheet. They didn't delete the sheets because there's a sheet for every category, but they just deleted all the content. And so it wasn't even like just deleting the sheets wholesale. They went in and they carefully deleted, just like they wanted us to know, fuck you guys. And I'm just like, God, it's, and I panicked because when you have a sheet like that, you have a lot of data in it. You panic when you go in and there's suddenly no data. But then like, I remembered, oh wait, it's the cloud. I can, I can restore from revisions and i did that and i was like why are you such jerks guys why what's the point it's really low yeah anyway we did a really great job this year of putting stuff on the sheet and we also had like a rec form that we let people who didn't have editing privileges use which got really busy and i couldn't keep up with it i hope if people like use that rec form they go back and like add it because they can now there's also a wiki um that dd put together that we'll link in the show notes that's not a spreadsheet and some people have problems with like loads of data like in their face and those wiki might be a better format for people looking for recommendations in a way that's not going to be data heavy so that might be uh, preferable to a spreadsheet so there's two two versions that you can use and i'm sure come next year scalzi will do his his comment rec thread and there's going to be oh, yeah that's true recommendations popping up and you're doing smuggler right now yep and everybody's posting a zillion lists. So many lists. So many lists so far. I have added so much shit to my wish list and to my Goodreads page. Oh my god. Did you know that there are literally thousands of books published every year? I did know that. <laughs> I was aware. It makes me very depressed that I'll never get to even it's just, there a are small so percentage. Many. And there are so many that I haven't heard of. And they sound amazing. And I'm like, why can't I just read? For a living. Why? Yes, exactly. Read for Why isn't that a job? Well, it is. It's my job. And it actually is really hard. Uh, why can't I have your job? I wanted my job too. I misunderstood how hard it could be. It's it's work. And sometimes maybe... It is work. You just yes. don't want to make it like paid work. Because it changes. Because when I was doing it for lady business, it was, you know, it was not that big a deal. It was like, oh, I can do this, knock it off whenever. But when you're doing it for, for work on a deadline for money, it it changes. It, it takes on this, like, you want to do a good job because you're getting paid. You don't want to let the, your editor down. It just, it's stressful. Because yeah. you, just, you just don't want to fuck it up. And sometimes you can fuck it up. So, <laughs> yes. We also, at lady business, we've been doing a quarterly surveys for short fiction. Where people put in their favorite five pieces of short fiction each quarter. We're about to post the results from the third quarter, and then we'll do a survey in January for people's fourth quarter favorite short fiction pieces. And then we'll pile, compile them all together in like a report and release it. 
those are available at Ladies Business. I'll put them in the show notes so you can check out the things that people have liked. It's just like a Google form that we do. And it's been pretty neat to see how short fiction is popping up to the top because we include everything, but we also include how many times something was recommended. So if a story was recommended seven times, we're going to tell people, hey, the story was recommended seven times. Cool. And on that note, I think it's time to move on to our zillion questions that we have to answer. Yes. Are you excited? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. So I'm going to go first. I'm excited about this one because we get to cheer for you. <laughs> for Anna, what does it feel like to win the Volio Awards? How do you pronounce oh, that award? Okay. So that was actually a running gag throughout the evening because nobody knew how to say this the name of this award, right? right. So it's Viulio. I'm never going to remember that, but all right. Viulio Awards. I won it. That was amazing. You did win. It was really exciting. We got all your photos and I was like, yes, I was so excited for you. You know, it was very stressful, as you know. Oh, yes. Uh, I was very stressed before going. I had a problem with my hair. I know it sounds silly, but that made me so stressed because my sister kept saying to me, you are not going to do anything with your hair. You're going, you have been nominated for an award. You have to go to a hairdresser. And I'm like, why? Anyway, I ended up going to this hairdresser and you can tell that I'm not used to doing anything to my hair because I went to the hairdresser at 11 a.m. and this thing was at 7 at night in London and I had to spend a few more hours working. They took take the train, take the tube, then walk into London Drizzle. By the time I got to the hotel, my hair was completely ruined. So that got me stressed. And I kept like sending messages to a bunch of friends that I have on Slack and Renee is one of them. And like, just like freaking out about like the most ridiculous things. And then I, I put on makeup and I went to this thing and it was so glamorous. And the invitation said, be there at 6.45 for 7 start. And I was there at 6.40 because I follow rules, okay? There is something that you need to know about me. If you tell me to be at at a place at 6 p.m., I will be there at 10 to 6. <laughs> because that's, that's how I that's how I roll, okay? So basically, we got that we were the first ones. And my partner was like, what time were we supposed to be here? And I said, 6.45 for 7. He's like... We are the first ones. <laughs> I love being the first. I love it. I will always, I will always be the first one to a place. I trust well, so hard. It, so I understand. Yeah, but except for this time, I was the first one there, and there were photographers, video people. There was a red carpet, and every and I walked into this beautiful place, and everybody was looking at me. Who are you? And I said, I am a nominee. Like, oh my God, welcome, welcome. Blah, blah, blah. And then I had gave interviews and I was photographed and I'm pretty sure they look awful. But anyway, and then there was champagne and I was, and then I, we met this one dude out of hundreds of people that had a Star Trek wallet. So we started talking about Star Trek and Star Wars. Nerds. And that was nice. I know. And then we had a sit-down dinner and I couldn't eat or drink anything because I was so anxious. Not that I wanted to eat anything because we asked for a vegetarian option. And my vegetarian starter, Renee, I swear to God, it was one slice of carrot, <laughs> one slice of beetroot. I hate beetroot. And because I hate beetroot, there was also beetroot 
ice cream. <laughs> okay. And this was the start. And I was like, what the fuck is this? That's amazing. <laughs> Am I a rabbit? Because <laughs> that, no, people, why can't you be more, you know, creative about your starters? Anyway, I ate the carrot and that's it. And I couldn't eat anything else. And there was, um, the main dish was a deconstructed sushi. Why is that deconstructed, deconstructed sushi, you might ask? It's like a bed of rice, sushi rice, and then a sheet of spinach, and then some mushrooms on top, some tofu, and then on the side, a slice of cucumber that actually looked like a courgette. And I really resent that because I love courgettes but I hate cucumbers and I ate the thing and th I was thinking it was a courgette, but it was a cucumber and it was awful. And then there was a presenter of the award, right? No, oh, for, no, actually first the director of the award came in and he said, you know, this is an award to celebrate the work that bloggers have been doing and how influential you are all at the moment. And because this Vulio thing is a PR company, okay? And they, they obviously, they work with bloggers. I never worked with them. I guess they don't need a lot of book bloggers or whatever. But the way that he says, he talked about it, is that the vast majority of their clients, the vast majority of people that they know within that, within their company, the first thing that they do when they want to buy something or they want to know about something or after they buy something they want to be reassured that they did the right thing they go to blogs so i thought that was a really interesting take because i don't usually think of blogs which might be a little bit naive of me because obviously you know we are a huge part of this huge marketing drive for books right it's it's undeniable that we are part of that whether we want it or not whether we play into it or not on purpose uh, but anyway, so that's how they take us. Anyway, so there was this award and it was a jury's award and then he introduced and then they brought in a presenter. The presenter was a comedian. Mm. And you know how these things are. Yeah. I was already, it was like, oh shit. Right. And this guy was from the BBC. I kind of like had heard about him before. The first joke that he makes is a fat shaming joke. He literally points at someone in the audience possibly a nominee, and then says something about how that person has been eating a lot of candy. And then immediately, but he says that, and then he says, oh, was that too soon? No, not too soon. Is that wrong? Oh, careful. And then ha ha ha. It's like, he knows what he's doing. He does it still. That's the grossest thing of all. And then he made a, a joke about falling airplanes and terrorists. And silence. The room was massive and it was like nobody was laughing. So it was really uncomfortable. It was really inappropriate. I hated. I tweeted about it. I don't care because, you know, I don't give a damn about anything. Even though I'm a nominee in this award. I am fucking tweet about this fucking asshole making these fucking jokes. I'm sorry. I got a little upset again. Anyway, so then then they presented the, started presenting the awards. The first one was the sports category and then that came mine and it was art and film. And they introduced all the nominees and then they called the book smugglers. And I was like, what? My partner was so sweet. He was like, oh my God. Did he make that noise? Exactly. Maybe. I definitely did make that noise. So I went to the stage, collected the award. Thank God there was no 
there were no speeches to be made and that was so good so then i was whisked away from the stage straight into another room to give an interview and then i came to my table again and i finally actually had a huge glass of wine immediately of and i don't even know i don't even know what happened in the rest of the awards because i was like i was tweeting i was taking pictures i was you know kissing my award it was really cool it was really cool it was an amazing experience that's and exciting it is congratulations like, on being an award winner one <laughs> step closer to world domination exactly so moving on with other questions that don't concern me for Renee, what does it feel like to devote your life to the Hugo Awards? Oh, Charles. Oh, Charles. <laughs> I don't think I have, to be fair. I do other things. Is that your answer? I mean, I don't know. I think that if I get bored with the Hugos, I'll just stop doing it. I've only really been involved with them since 2009 and 2015 now, which some people stay involved in this for decades and get like so, financially involved and i haven't really done that yet i've never gone to the convention i might never go to the convention who knows i'm having fun right now and as long as i'm having fun it'll keep me entertained and once i'm no longer having fun i'll just quit and everybody will not probably not miss me talking about it constantly i will never let you quit what yes you will you you brought me into this oh god and now it has taken over my life. Well, because, whose fault is that? Yours, obviously, because you made me into a Hugo appreciator. Yes, I guess I did. But it's because yes. it's fun. But when it stops it being fun. fun, that's when you have to bow out. Because then you just get bitter. It's The reason that a lot of these people got so upset with the Hugo Award is because they weren't having fun. Don't stick around if you're not having fun. Just leave it alone. Back that's away. True. If you're having fun dis- like discussing it, discussing the wor- works, the nominees, the, the, you know, the nerdy organization of the award, like if that's fun to you, great. If you're not having fun and you're just mad all the time, that's the time you need to bow out and it'll be okay. You can take a break and you can always come back later because it'll still be here. No, but I feel like these people, they probably are more of the mindset that if they're not having fun, then no one should have fun. Therefore, well, then that I'm makes them assholes. Let's gonna, yeah, yeah. Or puppies. It's it's in- interchangeable words now. <laughs> okay, moving on to the next question. Well, this is a question that's going to be really interesting for us to answer. Do we think Hamilton is eligible for the Hugos? This is from Jonah. You haven't listened to Hamilton yet. No. Oh my god, you now just like confessed my darkest secret to our listeners. Well, that's fine. <laughs> I, I know plenty of people haven't listened to it yet. I think this is an interesting question. Because Hamilton, if you're not familiar with it, I don't know how you've missed it. It's taken off the internet in the world. Is a bio, like a biographical musical about Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States, and it's done in like a rap hip hop style of music. It's a complete musical. Like you can get the whole thing in the on a CD and listen to it if you want, or digitally. All the actors in the musical are people of color, except for I think King George. <laughs> who gets to be a, a pompous white guy. The, the the token white dude. Yeah. And it's great. Lin-Manuel Miranda is super creative and he did such a great job. There's this whole side of genius lyrics, like a genius annotation that you can go and like read about all the stuff. It's best in the book by, by a dude whose name I for, keep forgetting. Sorry, dude, whose name I keep forgetting. And he was involved. He worked with Lin-Manuel Miranda on it. 
and it's which is really super cool to have a historian like supporting your musical. And so because this is reimagining the founding fathers and the people around them in this time as people of color, I want to argue that it's kind of like maybe Afrofuturist in a way because it's like reimagining the past Um... where it looks like the future. And I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda has talked about it's the story of where we come from told with who we are today. Oh, that's interesting. Then that that's that's how it would fit. Mm-hmm. The, and I the, would the I Hugo would, narrative. Yeah, actually. and I would not be opposed to seeing that in a category. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think it's going to fly because the Hugo voters do think, are. Do you think it would be best related work? No, I'd put it. I would put it in like one of the best dramatic presentation categories. But it will never fly no, because there's too much. The Hugos are suffering from too much internalized racism they're suffering from too much navel gazing like if you go to the hugo spreadsheet that we did and go to the best related work category there are tons of people nominating stuff like the people who wrote one of the amendments to the constitution to prevent to prevent the puppies from having such an effect with slates they've somebody's nominated that proposal and that's so weird to me because how can you get new people involved if you're so busy navel gazing on your own self? Like, how yes, you did good work, yeah. but what's the point of that? That's just not a way to grow your base, to grow the stuff you're celebrating. I just don't get it. I mean, I'm sure other people might understand why people are doing that, but I don't find that particularly innovative to give awards for the thing that the award is for it's really meta in a way but it's it, wow well, yeah and but in a really off-putting it's sort like of way self-patting self-congratulatory way yeah and and i'm just like and it just keeps everything inside the same circle yeah. and i'm just like no i mean I, I get why people are doing it but i don't and that's fine if they want to do it but that's not what i think the hugo award should be which it's it's a part of it. A lot of people think that what I want out of the Hugo Award isn't what the Hugo Award should be. So we can just agree to disagree and it'll be fine. But I think Hamilton could be eligible for the Hugos. I just don't think it's likely to be because right. you would just be wa- you would just be wasting your nominations at this point because of the whole navel gazing thing and the racism aspect. However, there is a way of getting Lee Manuel Miranda there because have you heard that he wrote the song for Star Wars? Mm-hmm. So he wrote the Cantina song for the new Star Wars movie with J.J. Abrams. So if it's an awesome song, you could still get Lee-Manuel Miranda in the best related work thing at the Hugo's. Maybe. Who knows? Anyway, when does the award cycle end? It's another question from Charles. Depends. Does it ever? No. No. Not there is at no all. Beginning, there is no beginning and no end. It's, an, it's a spiral. Is a spiral of doom? Because when I'm nominating stuff for the Hugos, I'm also paying attention to what I'm reading and like making reckless for the next year. Awards come out all year long. Yeah, exactly. So we are talking about the Nebulas Award uh, already. Uh, the Tip Tree Awards just finished the, the recommendation list. So it's it's all the time. Everything everything is awards. <laughs> I mean, if you want to opt out, you could just follow a certain a number of awards. Which I think is the smartest thing to do. Because if you follow too many, it's just too many all, all at once. But I think following a few is a good way to get a good idea 
of the way the field is moving. But yeah. as far as the cycle itself, it's just continue. It's, it's self renewing because new books are always always coming out. Editors and booksellers are always processing books and choosing books to put their industry weight behind, and it's just constant. So yeah. it doesn't ever it doesn't ever end. You could take breaks from it, but it's still going on even if you're not there. Yeah. Next is, what do you think of the Goodreads Awards from Charles? Do I need to think anything about it? I don't think I have an opinion on that. I like them because I find new books and categories I wouldn't otherwise find, but, like, I they get... Are, they, they are a popular award, right? They are a very... Like, they're a super popular award. So, I... And it's very it's very they clear. They pick stupid books! They pick stupid books. Oh my god, Anna. I think it's really... A, it's really obvious what books get the most publisher push. Because oh, yeah. the books that get the most publisher push, the most marketing, are the books that rise to the top. So they're the books that are most read. Those are the books that the Goodreads public are going to see more and read. Exactly. So Therefore, they are the most popular Therefore, ones. they are going to be the most popular. So yeah. it's... It's a popularity, like, it's an actual popularity contest based on the fact that the industry chooses books to support and puts the money behind those books to get them out to readers so they can pick them up. Yes, in many ways, that's probably the most interesting aspect of that award for me, because then you get to see where the money is going. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the Goodreads Award is the end, when they announce the winners, but they show the vote breakdowns for each category. So if you want to find interesting books, what I would do is go look at the books that didn't get over 5,000 votes and try those books. Those That's generally what I do with that award. I look down ballot and see what didn't get a lot of support because I feel like you may find interesting things there, that didn't get a lot of publisher push or our niche in some way. And so that's pretty much how I use that award. And also I found the I found the Goodreads award are pretty sexist. Oh. Like when the like especially in the fantasy and the science fiction categories sometimes. Science fiction this year there was like one woman in yes. the initial thing. It was Anne Lecky, Brent Hillary Mercy. One or two. No, I can't remember. But anyway, it was just I really think it was gross. One. Yeah, it was just really, it was just really gross. Like, how do you make a category like this? And then uprooted was in the YA category. It's not a YA novel, and they basically broke their own rules to put uprooted in the YA call category instead of the fantasy category where it belonged. That's what I think of the Goodreads Awards. They can be interesting to watch, but they're just one small award in a larger field of more considered awards. Uh, have they announced the winners yet? Yeah, they're out. Oh, okay. I you haven't can go seen see them. them. You can go see them. Now we have a question from Anon. Hi, Renee. I loved your fanfic back in the day and was wondering why you quit writing it. I see you talk about writing it sometimes on Twitter too. Do you ever plan to publish fanfic again? I'd love to see more Teen Wolf fanfic from you. Oh, boy. So. Oh, boy. This question. <laughs> the reason I quit writing fanfic is because I joined the science fiction and fantasy fandom. I also so I have also have pretty serious generalized anxiety. The last fanfic I published kind of went viral, and it was a, like there was a lot of attention on me, and I didn't like that very much, <laughs> which is really funny for a writer to not want attention on themselves. Obviously, I can fix that by just working on my generalized anxiety, so I'm not so afraid to be in the limelight. That's a thing, and I'm working on it. It's a slow process, as any as anybody with anxiety knows. Working on depression and anxiety is a work. And I've struggled with it a long time, and it's really affected my writing. That's a, a large reason. In 2013, I wrote an essay 
on Strange Horizons called what was it called? I don't even Communi- remember. Uh, it was it was my community uh, column, but I don't remember. What yeah. It was. Anyway, so I wrote this column, and Patrick Nelson Hayden and Hal Duncan both took serious issue with it, and basically stomped me with their internet social social capital. Hal Duncan wrote a really nasty screed about me slash fanfic that really had nothing to do with oh my god so so much nothing to do it had nothing to like he used me as a straw man to rant about fanfic yeah yeah and it was just really gross and i found it super inappropriate that people were going oh yeah good job dudes when these dudes these men these men grown men with all the social capital was stepping on a fan with like 500 twitter followers and i mean i wasn't perfect i was kind of a dick to some of the people in that thing but it's really hard when people are piling on you yeah it's hard i try not to do that anymore to people because once it happens to you you're just like shit this is awful so generally i keep my disagreements with people to subtweeting or i just email them directly but that's the year i stopped writing completely after i read hal duncan's read about fanfic i stopped i was too scared to stop i was too scared to write it anymore it was really difficult for me to like, unpack what was true from what those men were saying about me versus, you know, what they were wrong about. And it just destroyed my confidence. And I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to writing fanfic. I try really hard, but then I just get triggered. Like, I just, I'll sit down to write something and I'll start and I'll freeze up. And it's really fucking frustrating to me that I can't do it after wanting to do it for so long. And I also think that fandom, since it's moved to Tumblr, has gotten a lot less fun. It's a lot more judgmental it's a lot more mean people were putting my fanfic on goodreads and like rating it like one star and being dicks wow i thought you're not supposed to do that with fanfic i mean you can goodreads lets you and it's fine i don't care if people want to do it but then the people are like linking it on pinboard and they're writing commentary and the little thing and tagging it with the pairing hi guys fan artists and fan writers are on pinboard too using those tags looking at those Looking at pairing, we see when you tag our fic with nasty bullshit. That's demoralizing and unfun because we're not getting paid for this crap. So I mean, I'm really sorry you don't like our work, but you're not gonna get it. You're you're not gonna get any more of it. So congratulations on being assholes. It was just a lot easier before we moved to Tumblr to avoid critiques, but now it's almost impossible to escape critique because it, it's in your space because spaces have become so decentralized. And so that's why, Anon, I have not written fanfic since 2012. I'm really sorry. I'm really glad you liked the Teen Wolf fanfic I did write. I do want to write more Teen Wolf fanfic because my friend Rose really loves the fandom still and still loves the characters. And I hope that I can get enough confidence to come back to it and write her stuff, at least. She might be the only one that sees it, but hopefully I'll be brave enough to eventually put it online too. Next is a question for Anna. Oh boy, I'm excited about this one. I'm incredibly impressed with your company and your blog. How have you been so successful? What do you do differently than other book bloggers to be so far reaching? I'd love to be this successful, but it's like yelling into a dark hole sometimes. How do you manage this? Tell me your secrets from an anon. I'm ready to hear your secrets too. <laughs> Everybody get up paper, take notes. I don't know. <laughs> oh boy. I Let think- down. Okay, should I should I answer this? seriously you should answer this seriously i guess they want a really serious I, answer i don't want to sound like a douchebag but I will, I will more, if you start if you start sounding like, like a pretentious douchebag i will let you know yes okay so i think part of it comes from the time when we started the blog 
it was a long time ago, eight years ago, in 2008. At that point, there were quite a few blogs out there, but there wasn't that many, not like there are today. When we first started, I, we were already part of the romance community. I particularly was part of the romance community and I had a lot of friends in the romance community. And I used to post comments all over the place. So people kind of like knew me already. So when we started the book smugglers, what I did was I left comments everywhere in the romance community. I just told everybody that we had started that thing. And I, I was part of forums. I, I used to be a huge fan of Julia Quinn and Eloisa James, and they had a forum just for the two of them. And there are tons of readers there. And, I, and I, every time I, we posted something new, I would just drop a link on that forum for people to follow. And it kind of like really worked. And it was interesting because there is something to be said about the romance communities that they are very friendly, they are very welcoming, and they are very supportive. So all of these people came and supported the blog, and they kept leaving comments. And the, for the first year of the book smugglers, we were mostly a romance blog. I read only romance for the first year. So it grew from there, you know. So it kind of like started with a good base already. And that I think that's that's a difficult thing to do if you don't have that base. So from the get-go, we, we already had like 50, 100 readers per day on the blog from basically week one. That's a huge thing. That's, that's massive for a blog that is just starting. And from there, and I have always horrified Thea with how I have no qualms about just contacting people. So from the start, I was just emailing publicists. I was sending emails to my favorite romance authors, superstars. Hey, I have this saying, this blog, I would love to interview you. And you know what? I remember right at the beginning, I got an interview with Julie Garwood. Julie Garwood is like this massive old school romance writer that everybody loves. And kind of like everybody's like in awe at her or used to be because... She's kind of like outdated now with so many new types of romance being written. But at that point in time, she was still kind of, people were still like, oh my God, Julie Goward, Julie Goward, how did you get an interview? And it's like, I just went to her website, got her email and sent her an email. And I have always done things like that. And it just grows from there. It just grew from there. And when we, when we started reading more YA, it's the same thing. We went to blogs, we talked to people, we went to the BA, we met people, we exchanged cards and continued sending requests for reviews, for, for not reviews, for interviews and inviting people over. It's a great way. Like Smoglifus is the thing that we have run from year one. We have always had 30 to 50 guests every year for that one month. And it's, just, it's a lot of people. And it's a lot of people that end up leaking to you and talking to you and knowing who you are. And that's how you kind of start growing to creating that community. I feel like these days it's really hard to make that community because people are not visiting blogs anymore that much. You get a lot of people talking about what you post on social media rather than on the blog itself. So that feeling of connecting to people has kind of like morphed into a different thing. It's spread out 
the funny thing that we we had was that when we first started, we said, well, we are just going to post one post a week. But from week one, we were already doing things every day. So it's kind of like keeping at it, doing it every day. And we always felt it was fun, but we also always looked at it as work. And for us, work is fun. Fun is work. It's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be the same thing for everybody, but this is how it worked for us. And this is how it has been working for us. So from an outside perspective, since I started following you guys in 2009, 2008, I was there when you got your domain, I think. Right. Okay. So that was the end of the first year. So, yeah. Because we had a blog spot when we started. It was uh -huh, the yeah. blogspot.com. Yeah, I remember your first graphics. It was so all, it, it was horrible. It but, was so green. So from an outside perspective, first by looking at your blog, what I see best as things have changed is that you've diversified a lot. You're still doing reviews, but you're also running for Kirkus. You're going to conventions and handing out your card. You're, you've expanded into different genres that you're interested in. Yeah. And diversifying is how you kept building a base because you're still expanding. And I mean, now you're still doing it because now you have a publishing company. You do more nonfiction content, like you do SF and conversation. Yeah. And that's different than interviews. It's different than giveaways. Yes. It's what it, it's different than all, like it's different than a lot of stuff that other blogs were doing for a long time. So that's true. Yeah. We do, we do have different features that we keep changing every year. We try to do different. We have old school Wednesdays and we have inspirations and influences and we have reading comics and we keep doing those to keep things fresh for ourselves as well. And for our readers too. And yeah, that's a good point that you make that we have to diversify and do new things. You also have to be yourself a lot of times. I started Lady Business yes. in, what, 2011, right? I don't even remember. Yeah. So I started late, but I also didn't want to join that. I found the SF community really fucking sexist, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. So when I went to Anna and Jody, I'm like, let's start a blog. But let's do it over here on DreamWith. We have 30 comments. So it's a little more It's a little more out of the way on the internet because DreamWith is not a very popular platform. We can just do our own thing. And we can boost up the voices that we like. And it's been pretty rewarding doing it that way because you avoid some of the more like egregious stuff. I, like, I don't think we get like tons of traffic, but we do have like a core community. So if like, you want to be like a big name blogger, that's going to be really hard to do. But if you want to commit a, create a community around people who like your work, you can do that. Just go out and find the people you admire, the, pe the bloggers that, that are doing cool stuff, the writers who are doing cool stuff, follow them and interact with them, link to their stuff. Leave comments if you want. Talk to them on Twitter. That's a great way to do it. Make sure you're using Twitter as a marketing tool. People use Twitter. Absolutely. Like people use Twitter as RSS now. RSS isn't dead. I don't care what people say. A lot of people I know still use RSS. And they're still young. But if you're just starting out three, like two times a day from the morning and the night shift, post a link to your stuff on Twitter. Like, oh, I wrote this. And just put it out there regularly. You have to be regular about it. I, on Lady Business, I'm not really regular about stuff. When I'm regular, I notice that I do a lot better when, than when I'm not doing regular content. Like, I, for a while there, I was doing um, my reading column where I would post it about the stuff I was reading. And I was doing it regularly for, like, four or five weeks. 
And it was amazing how much more interaction I was getting with people on the posts and how much better the posts were doing. But then in November, I got sick and I got busy and I stopped doing them. And the stats on Lindy Business, like, went, like, plummeted. Regularity is a big thing. Like, it is. The book smugglers is. is, you guys are hella regular. Like, you do, like. I think in the past eight years, we haven't posted three times. Maybe that is a little bit. Maybe that's a little excessive. (laughs) If you just choose what you want to do, what you love to do, and pick a day, do it on that day every week, people will eventually find you and come back. I don't think you're ever going to be book smugglers because book smugglers are going to take over the world. So if you don't want to take over the world, maybe maybe don't model yourself after them and burn yourself out. World domination is hard work, guys. I don't know. You have to be really smart about CEO, too. We installed a new plugin on the blog. Uh, It's a CEO plugin. And you have to create, like, titles for each one of your posts and then choose a keyword. And then it just becomes easier for people to find you when you do Google searches. So I'm learning. Like, Like eight years too late. But, you know, (laughs) we are so geeking out about it. And I'm like, did you see this? We need to do the CEO thing. It's like, and every time you do it properly, it gives you either, like, it gives you, like, a green circle. And every every time it's green, I was like, yes, I did it. I am a CEO master. Moving on. Okay. So moving on to the question that I really wanted to talk about, I was actually want to, I wanted to bring it up myself, but someone, aka Charles, helped me out with it. So what do you think of J.J. Abrams' statement that Star Wars was always a boy's thing and a movie that dads took their sons to? Jerk. Do we have, do we want to be charitable or not towards this statement? It's a stupid statement. It's a, it's, Kate was talking about it. Kate Elliott was talking about it on Twitter. I think I saw some of it and then I saw her commentary immediately after. She said they don't even see half of the world. Men don't even see half the world. We're invisible. And it's um, it's amazing that this, this man who has all these resources at his disposal doesn't see half the world. Who can't conceptualize that girls have liked Star Wars just as long as he has. It's just amazing. And it's just, it's like, I I read that article and I was coming from a long weekend in which I had several guest guest authors, all of them women, talking about how Star Wars has influenced them as writers from the moment they were kids and watched the movies for the first time. It's, It's very frustrating because it just erases our experience. It raises everything that we've been through. And it's kind of like, you know, things that dads took their sons to. But it's like dads can take their daughters and mothers can take their sons. And what is, it was, what is it this? Was just, it's just, it was just gender. It's not only gender essentialist. It's just ignorant. It's just ignorant. dumb. Yes. And but I don't, I like J.J. Abrams. I guess he's the executive producer of the next few movie, movies, but he's not directing it episode eight i just want this dude to go away like i just want him to go away i don't find him that interesting as a director and every time he opens his mouth he manages to be ignorant and offensive why doesn't somebody at disney fucking gag you dude (laughs) because you are a terrible publicity machine stop take a class read a book and then try again but until then close your mouth because you don't know what the hell you're talking about because you don't see half the world. Yeah, and but that 
terrifies me because will that be then transplanted into how he's making the movie? I, I don't know. How is he framing Leia in the movie? How is he framing Ray in the movie? Are they going to be just there because... I mean, he says that now, you know, girls will have someone to whatever uh, with his movie because, of course, he's reinventing the wheel or something and he's so special. People who act like that, who are like, oh, I'm reinventing the wheel, are generally not reinventing the wheel, just being dead. No. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, but I'm really a bit terrified. I'm also terrified because I read a couple of books, uh, tying books, and I I have a bad feeling. So this is why he shouldn't open his mouth. Why yeah. would you bring out somebody who's going to do this? He did it with he did it both times with Star Trek. He's done it with this. Why keep bringing this dude out? Tape his yeah. mouth shut until the movie is out, and then we'll be all busy talking about the movie. And he then he can talk when nobody's listening. So that's that's my feelings on that. I was just like I can't. I was so grossed out. I was angry. I was upset as well. And I'm a little bit terrified. And I kind of feel like because he said that, I am now a little bit too worried. I was going to go to this movie 100% excited about it. Now I'm kind of like maybe 90% excited about it because 10% has been taken over by worry. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is why he shouldn't talk. Yes. Shut up, JJ Abrams. All right. So next question. Hi, I love your show, but I'm curious if Anna will ever get into fanfic so you guys can have hilarious discussions about tropes and fandom adventures and more fanfic wrecks. Since the new Star Wars is coming out, maybe that could be a gateway? Anyway, thanks for keeping me company on long bus trips to and from work. Well, first off, Anon, I'm sorry if you take a bus to and from work, but I'm glad we're there with you. As for fanfic, I have been trying. Oh my god, (laughs) I have been trying. It's so fucking hard because she's so busy. It's hard. And I don't think she ships the things I ship because mostly I <laughs> ship men. I don't really do femslash mostly because I I feel like shipping and wrecking a lot of femslash would tell people on the internet way more about my sexual preferences and I'm comfortable with them knowing. <laughs> uh. So... It's been really hard. I'm trying. I've agreed. I have agreed to read Megan Whalen Turner's The Queen's Thief series. And once I get through that, Anna has promised to read one of my favorite Star Trek fics. Yes, that's true. So how how is it going with that? It's started, sort of. <laughs> I've just been really busy. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And plus, Captain America Civil War comes out next year, and there's going to be so much fanfic, and I'm going oh to... Oh my god somebody dear dear <laughs> listeners if you think anna should accept my invite to ao3 please tweet at us and tell anna to accept my invite to ao3 <laughs> once we get her an ao3 account it's just the beginning of the end we could do it i believe in us i plead the fifth <laughs> you can't that's not allowed it's not allowed to plead the fifth you're not an american we're not in court <laughs> nice try i don't know i have kind of like i feel like i have this um resistance and I, I can't explain why. It's because we haven't found you the rest story yet. I used to read a lot of fun fiction around Lost with Kate and Sawyer. Exactly. See? We just got to find you the right thing. So maybe the right the right couple to... I mean, I've been giving you them. And they're great. <laughs> but the, the right couple for me and not for you. My, all the couples I ship are great. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there has never been a better couple since Kate for me. Oh, boy. Let's move on. (laughs) 
What are your noteworthy podcasts of 2015? Serial for me. That was 2000. I listened to it this year, though. But are you 2015, really? Yes, it was. I listened to it for for our first episode, and that was in the beginning of the year. Wow, really? Oh, okay, dang. And I think then undisclosed, I think, were the breakout podcasts from in this year. I liked Criminal a lot. Oh, I haven't. I haven't listened to this one yet. Which is about just crime stuff and people, and also mystery show. Which I don't think I need to talk about mystery show anymore because uh, everybody knows what it is. Because I screamed about it uh, this summer quite a bit. Did they did they stop doing it? Because she, I was I no, just the always... season one is just over. They're working on season two. Ah, uh, okay, it's a seasonal thing. All mm-hmm. oh, right. And then the, the other ones that I'm been into recently have been the Black Tapes podcast and Limetown, which are like fictionalized, like scary podcasts, I guess. And Black Tapes podcast had one season, and it's now I guess they're working on season two. And it's, so the first season's done. You can listen to it. Lomtown is ongoing. Um, and I'm trying to think of like discussion podcasts that if I find any new ones that I like. There's Big Good Girls, which is which is good. And oh, Fansplaining, which is basically a podcast explaining fandom. To oh, people. that's interesting. Not SF fandom, but like media fandom, fanwork fandom. It's hosted by Elizabeth Minkle and Flourish Klink, who are both really smart and knowledgeable about the past of fandom and they have a lot of great things to say and they interview a lot of interesting people and have interesting discussions so those are those are the ones for me i think you only have one topic two podcasts one topic <laughs> yes basically yeah i think the rest of them the ones that, that i listen to are the ones that i've liked before like galactic suburbia right. of course the new ones yeah. are just those two well that's okay yeah i think so maybe you'll find something new in the hugo season maybe dun 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 oh boy so, next question. I donated to vote in the OTW election this year instead of giving my normal $50. Everything I'm reading looks very shady. I love the AO3 and fan lore and would donate only to them if I could, but there's, since there's no way to do that without donating to the OTW, it feels like my money is going into a mysterious black hole. Do you still donate? Do you think it's useful to donate any money to the OTW right now? Oh, Anon. Oh, Anon. This question is so loaded. <laughs> and very obviously given to us before the elections drama. Oh, oh boy. But I'm just going to wait on that for a second. I'm just going to answer, because I think I'm going to... I'm going to answer two questions. So, in that that sense, then, I'm just going to add the next question. Another question from another unknown. What the fuck is happening with the OTW? So... (laughs) So I can answer it all together. Yes. Do it. I can't answer this question from an objective perspective, because I have been in the OTW since 2009. I served as tag London chair from 2010 to the end of 2011. I've served as volunteers and recruiting chair, which works closely with the board of directors since 2012. I am not an objective observer of this. I have seen some shit. So everybody else who's looking from this from the outside, I can't even, I can't manage that because I've seen what's going down inside. A lot of the stuff I can't talk about because we have a confidentiality agreement and to protect our volunteers and their privacy. And as much as it frustrates some people, our directors are still volunteers and they need to be advocated for. So it's really hard to answer this question in a way that is objective because it's just difficult. So the first part is this idea that you could don't, that you would donate to only AO3 and Bandlore if you could. So here's my problem with that. We're a whole organization. Like, sometimes AO3 committees share tools 
with other non-AO3 committees. Once you say, oh, I want to earmark donations to this project over here and not give any money to this project over here, what happens if everybody wants to give all their money to this one project and not give any to other projects? Because the OTW does have overhead. We need third-party product products to use for volunteer management. We need third-party projects to use for, like, support tickets. We need things. We need training that costs money. Sometimes we need to get together and talk in person, which costs money. It's just overhead. It's a problem in the nonprofit sector where you want to give all your money to one thing and not and make sure no money is going to this other thing that you don't approve of. It's really problematic to me because it just it means you're going to starve the organization for stuff it needs as far as volunteer development and training and the things that make the gears work. So as somebody who's not on an AO3 committee, so you want to give all your money to AO3 and Fandler. Well, that's great. But I'm on volunteers recruiting and I'm not an AO3 committee member, but I do support AO3 committees. Like we induct and remove their volunteers. We help them with their tools. We help them with the training if they have questions. We support those chairs. So what does it say to me when people don't want my committee to have funds to do our work? That doesn't seem very fair. And I really wish we could get past this whole idea that giving money to the organization is somehow un- like unsafe be- because if you give it to the AO3 or family, it's going to be safer when we're all the same organization. If you're supporting volunteers and recruiting or you're supporting web strategy and development or any other committee that's not an AO3 committee, technically you're probably also supporting AO3 committees because we all work together. And we all support each other. As to whether it's smart to donate right now, I don't donate except to vote in elections because I donate so much of my time that I don't really feel like it's necessary for me to also give them money. So I pretty much donate only to vote in elections. So I haven't really donated until this year. I know we haven't ever had a budget and that's a problem. And if you don't want to donate until we have a budget, so you know where your money is actually like going, like not like just into the organization so we can use it, but like specifically what we're spending money on, I would wait until we had a budget to do that. Yes, that's fine. But my problem is when it comes, like, I only want to give money to these things and then starve the rest of the projects, even though they're all working together. So that's the answer to that question. But the whole thing uh, about what the fuck is happening in the OTW is there has been a lot of other people who have written about this um, who are not me, who are actually objective observers, who don't know what's going on, haven't gone through the disaster that was this election cycle. So basically, to uh, the short version is that there was a lot of drama. The board and staff and chairs have been at odds for quite a while. The election process went went on. There were five new people running for board, plus one incumbent. Two of the new people won the election. And then at an open board meeting, the sitting board proposed that the incumbent who ran for election, who lost the election, get another seat for 2016. And then she voted for herself. That didn't go over well, and it did not make people happy. People were really upset. I was really upset. I still don't understand. I can't explain the decision. I don't know. I mean, I'm on the inside of the organization, so I saw internally some of the stuff that was happening, but it doesn't explain why they thought that decision was okay, why they didn't see the conflict of interest, why they didn't see that doing that vote then at that point before the new directors who had just been elected by the membership before they were seated was a good idea. I don't know. What I do know is that the OTW is a currently very 
not broken, broken's the wrong word, but we're very paranoid and we're very scared because we've been living under a board of directors that's been outright abusive. And I'm sure the board body itself, the individuals on that body don't see it that way. It's very obvious from their tone of their communications with the rest of the volunteers that they don't see it that way. And when you have almost every chair and tons of staff going, we feel oppressed, that's a sign that things are not right. No. So four hours after they, you know, made this really controversial decision to appoint an incumbent director to two seats, which I don't understand how it would even work, give them giving her an extra seat because she was still sitting in her current seat. So they were just giving her an extra, they were giving her a second seat for a month and a half. How does that even work? Clearly did not run that by legal. Four hours after that, they all resigned. I just, I followed that from afar because obviously I don't know anything about it. I'm not part of it or in any any way or shape or form. I was like, what is happening? And of course, I I followed through you as well. And yeah, I know how upset you were. I was just really, the thing about it is that two of my staffers on my committee went to the retreat that happened in October and they came back and they're like, oh, it was good. We worked together and it seems like we're finally going to move in a positive direction. And then this happened. It just seems so strange to me and I don't understand. And I've worked with these directors individually and I've, and they've been great to work with as individuals, but when they get in this board body, something happens. So I don't think it's the individuals. I think it's the board culture. It's closed off. It's isolated. It's paranoid. It's not like they're not transparent. It, there's no collaboration. It just feels like a, it's a it's a complete silo, and that's not how the board should be. And so I don't know what's happened at the board level to cause this problem. There's a lot of information like coming out now in public about our constructive correction action procedure that I built a few years ago to prevent people from being removed with no cause from their positions where people are like coming out and saying oh well they used that against me and I'm just like that that's not how that works and I just don't understand what was going on I just I wish I could it seems to me like there was something happening at the board level that we should have seen and helped them with how did we miss that it was getting so bad that it would cause this to happen in a, in a way that put the entire board at odds at the, with the organization that they would resign like at the time when they made the decision to appoint this incumbent to a new to an extra seat for the 2016 term i was just wanting them to rescind the, that decision and wait until the new people were seated and then make the decision you know what i mean yeah i would have been fine with that but they all chose to resign it's been a mess i can't imagine and i just really wish it hadn't gotten to this point but I said on my Tumblr that this started in 2012, this sick board culture. And when the board is ill, it leaks down to everybody else. Because the chairs have to work with the board. If the board's ill, the chairs are going to get frustrated and tired and overworked and stressed. And then they're, that's going to leak onto the staff. And then staff who manages the volunteers, if they have volunteer pools, are going to get, you know, stressed. And it's just, a, it's just a horrible cycle. And I watched it start in 2012 and I couldn't do anything or I didn't know what to do. I had no clue how to manage it. Or make it better. And so, and then in mid-2012, mid I just got caught up in it myself. I, I was super abusive and mean to people that I shouldn't have been super abusive and mean to. And had to, people had to pull me inside and go, what are you doing? Stop. It's really easy to get caught up in it. 
I just feel really bad that these women who have now left the board, I just feel in a lot of ways like the volunteer advocate committee who's supposed to advocate for them and help them, we just weren't able to reach out to them in a way where we could help them. Right. And it's just really discouraging. So now I don't know what's going to happen. The two new directors are going, they, I think they took their seats on December 1st early and they're going to start managing things. I've worked with both of them. They're okay to work with and I'm excited to see what they'll do. But I don't, like I said, at this point, board is still kind of opaque. It depends on how they open it up. So there's a lot of people who've written about this and summed it up better than me. Cause like I said, I'm not an objective observer of this. So I'll put a bunch of the links that I think are useful into the show notes and you can just read all the things that other people have said and linked to, which will probably give you a better overview of the players. Uh, on the plus side, I do think that the OTW is going to be fine and AO3 will be fine as well. There's no reason to panic over AO3 going anywhere because the board and ADT that manages the archive with the support of the other AO3 committees are still working. Like they, like the board and those committees don't like the board doesn't have any day-to-day management of AO3. So all the projects are safe. I know that everything is safe because we're still having to work. Volunteers and recruiting is still getting tickets. So everything's fine. (laughs) The day we stop getting tickets is the day I'll worry. Um, I hope that answered your questions, Anon. I'm really sorry that I couldn't give you a more objective view because I don't know. Like, I assume you asked because you knew I was in the OTW. I just don't know if you knew how close I was to it. So I hope that, I hope that. I hope that answers. Did you, do you understand, Anna? Did you get it? Do you feel like you know more? I think so. (laughs) You're like, this is really confusing to outsiders. It is confusing. I don't even know, Renee, what AO3 means. Archive of our own. It's a Virginia Wolf reference. Ah, okay. Is it? A room of one's own? <gasps> of course. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how things things are going and it'll be it'll be okay. We're all gonna be fine. I hope so. Okay, so uh after that heavy crap. We're going to answer this question from Charles. What are your favorite cookies? I don't eat cookies. (gasps) What? I don't eat cookies. Why? (laughs) Because they have sugar. I don't eat things with sugar. (laughs) I'm horrified right now. I don't even know what to think. (laughs) Jesus Christ. In June 2014... I decided that I did. I wanted to cut all sugar from my food. And so I cut all kinds of added sugar. Like I started drinking black coffee without sugar. <sighs> I don't drink any. I, I literally just drink coffee, water, some herbal teas. And then sometimes I will have sometimes a glass of wine or a glass of beer even though I know they have sugar, obviously. And then I don't eat any sweets or anything like that. And I really take care of not eating anything that has added sugar to it, including high fructose fruit, like bananas. I used to eat a lot of bananas. I haven't eaten a single banana in over a year. Well, this fat kid's like, well, here, do you want, do you want the short list or do you want the long list of what cookies I like? But anyway, if when I used to eat cookies, bananas were my favorite because like I love bananas. Banana cookies? Banana cookies. Yeah, banana with toffee cookies. <gasps> Num. Well, you got an answer from you anyway. Even though you don't eat cookies anymore, yes. you still got an answer. <laughs> 
I just wanted to horrify you. I was a little horrified. <laughs> my favorite cookie is... What is my favorite? I do have a favorite cookie. I just don't eat... I go through periods of like, oh, God, no cookies, please, no. Because I'm not a big dessert fan. It's probably like... There was a cookie that Target sold a few years ago called a harvest cookie. But it was like oatmeal and cranberries and white chocolate and walnuts. Mm. And it was really good. It was had a little sugar in it. And so I basically adapted it and learned how to make it myself at home. And so the, that's pretty, probably my favorite cookie because it has walnuts and cranberries in it. And I like, yeah. those, I like those things together. So you said that you don't like desserts a lot, but out of the ones that you eat, so let's say it's not cookies that is, they are your favorite. So what's your favorite dessert? This is really hard because I don't think I do. I mean, sometimes I'll get cravings for stuff and eat them. But I shift around. Sometimes I'll like cookies more. Sometimes I'll like cake more. Sometimes I will... I just want plain chocolate. I guess if I had to, like, choose a favorite period, it would probably be, like, just plain milk chocolate. All right. Because that's... I'll, I'll go back to milk chocolate a whole lot. It's like a comfort food. But uh, not too much comfort because uh, if you leave me alone with a bag of, uh, like, hugs or Hershey Kisses, <laughs> those fuckers are gone. <laughs> Oh, it's really, man. I don't pay, like, I'll start reading or something, and I won't pay attention, I'll just eat the whole fucking bag, and I'm just like, why do I feel like shit? Oh, <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> this is why I feel like crap. I ate this entire bag of chocolate by myself. This is why I cut sugar, because it's so addictive. Well, if I would control, if I would have self-control, I'm an adult, and <laughs> it would be so bad. But, no, as I've aged, I've really, I've really aged out of, like, sweets. Yeah, do you know? I think that's for me as well because it was it, it was like suddenly very very easy to cut sugar, and I used to be huge into chocolate and having desserts every day and having cakes and pies and all sorts of apple shit because I was really into apples, like apple pie and apple turnover and things like that. But then it was very easy for me, and now I'm kind of like my cravings are. All for savories and crisps and potatoes. Yeah, I did that too. I will. I would if it like. Do you want cookies or do you want like fries from McDonald's? Oh my god, both no, unhealthy. Yes. But yes. guess what? I'm choosing. <laughs> I'm gonna be like, are those fries hot? Yes. Okay, give them to me. No, it's crisps, it's crisps, 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 glorious crisps. <gasps> oh, okay. So that was a long discussion of dessert. Hope everybody's <laughs> hungry now. <laughs> Moving on. We are nearly done. There's only one more question. And that's, uh, what are you looking forward to in 2016? That's like a whole episode worth question, isn't it? It really is. Charles, what were you thinking? <laughs> I think he was thinking that he just wanted us to answer this question the entire episode. Yes. <laughs> but you're going to get one. We're going to have an episode like that where we talk about what we're looking forward to. But we can pick like three things. Three things you're looking forward to. Okay, I guess you're going to say... Captain America. Yes, I'm looking forward to Captain America Civil War still. That's I, true. I am looking forward to Luke Cage. Luke Cage. Oh, yeah, that is coming out next year, isn't it? That's yes. exciting. So much. I'm looking forward to Agent Carter Season 2. Which got pushed back. I'm so mad. Ugh. But just a couple of weeks. I know, but goddammit, when... President Obama, couldn't you have just, like, moved it to a different day? Yes, why can't Obama just do his what is it that he's gonna do it's the state of the, the union his last one his last yeah. state of the union well it's not it's unimportant that's all i'm saying <laughs> and i guess i'm looking forward to a shit ton of books too oh yeah a whole lot of books definitely the nice and k gems in the sequel to the fifth the obelisk gate yeah 
is the the next unlucky novel i think it's gonna it's, come out next year i think it's Hopefully, due at the it, end i think it's due at the end of next year so it probably won't come out next year oh man i know it's really depressing oh, anyway sorry. that's three for me i'm always looking and i'm also looking forward to the superman movie so that's that <laughs> superman movie. and the star wars there's gonna be a star wars movie next year right is, isn't there uh, maybe yeah is it gonna be one <gasps> i haven't thought of that is it gonna be one per year for the next three years or it's gonna be was it gonna, gonna take, take a couple of know. years <gasps> how do we not know that we are experts in star wars now. <laughs> well, well you're an expert on star wars i'm just a casual fan until i ship something and then i'll be uh, i'll be intense like you <laughs> i don't know i'm trying to think uh, obviously captain america's full war i'm looking forward to that and there's some books i'm looking forward to I don't know what it's called. I think it's called Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee. I think that's what the title is. Ah. It's a science fiction book. And then I'm also looking forward to Babylon's Ashes by James S. A. Corey. I'm really excited for the book. <laughs> <laughs> like, I posted... Goodreads is so weird to me because I posted... I added it to my to-read list, but I added like a little, little review. And I, and I posted like, I'm 200% ready. And then I added a GIF. Like a really kind of creepy gift to it. And people keep coming along and liking that review. I and, love Goodreads. It's so... I love Goodreads for those things. I, I love it. I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> I guess you're also ready for the book. But yes, I'm super excited. Because I've seen the first episode of The Expanse. The, the adaptation of the first book in the series, Leviathan Wakes. And I liked it a lot. So I'm really excited to see where the series goes, series goes after Nemesis Games. Because... I loved Nemesis Games. I didn't like Nemesis Games as much as I liked Caliban's War, the second book. And Nemesis Games was the fifth book, but it's like my second favorite. I really am hoping that Babylon's Ashes is good and it doesn't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up, James S.A. Corey! <laughs> Don't fuck it up! So that's, yeah, that's my... Some of the things I'm looking forward to. I'm sure there'll be more next year when we do our oh, actual yeah. episode. <laughs> Three-hour yeah. three episode. Oh, unedited. <laughs> Just a list of us talking about shit. So that's all the questions we have time for. We actually have more questions, but we don't have time for any more of them because we don't want this episode to be two and a half hours. No. So, so before very quickly, we, yeah. I'm not going to do like my five minute long recommendation. I'm just going to do like it's Planet Fall by Emma Newman and it's aliens and it's the future and it's mental health and illness. It's unreliable narrator and it's a colony in space. And you know she likes it because you can hear her banging on her desk. Yes. That's, That's when I'm you know doing. that she really <laughs> feels it. I'm sorry. So I actually have a wreck that dovetails with that because I'm going to wreck an episode of the podcast Rocket Talk hosted by Justin Landon. He had Kate Elliott and Emma Newman, the author of Planet Fall, on his podcast to discuss like women in science fiction and fantasy and how we engage with narratives as far as anxiety goes and oh my god it's the most fascinating discussion that i've heard on rugged talk in ages the, i think the last episode i love this much was the one with kate elliott and kate jemison really i really really highly recommend you go and listen to this podcast it's only like an hour long it's nice and it's so interesting to hear them talk about their experiences and how they feel like they fit the field and how the, the field has changed. So if you're into women in science fiction and fantasy, I would definitely check it out. Oh, I'll definitely listen to that. I missed it. Well, now I'm telling you, it's super awesome. So okay. definitely go. Definitely, definitely. go. So it's, are you Kate Elliott's number one fan? Yes. 
In fact, I am the president of the Kate Elliott fan club. I'm going to make badges. Okay. And on that note, I guess we say goodbye. Yes. Thanks for talking to me today, Anna. A pleasure as always. And thanks, guys, for listening. Bye. Fangirl Happy Hour is Anna Grillo and me, Renee Williams. I'm also our producer. You'll find links to some of our discussion topics at our show notes at fangirlhappyhour.com. You can email us at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. You can submit questions to us anytime and we'll answer them on future episodes. You can find us on Tumblr and Facebook at Fangirl Happy Hour. One long word, no spaces. You can chat with us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcast. You can also find us under our personal accounts at Booksmugglers and at Renee. Our annual survey is live on the very internet you got this podcast from. Check out the show notes of this episode to find a link to fill it out if surveys are your thing. Our music is by Boxcat Games. Our logo is by the very talented Era. You can commission them at justera.tumblr.com. For both myself and Anna, thanks for listening. See you next episode.